Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we're going to continue our series on Who Am I? by looking at the two sides of narcissism. Having and taking in positive experiences is a key part of building useful inner strengths, and developing a strong sense of self almost always includes some sense that you're basically a good, capable person with desirable traits. How can we do these things without developing narcissistic traits or falling prey to narcissistic tendencies? Put another, maybe slightly more casual way, where's the line between not enough narcissism and too much? To help us figure that out, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. How you doing? I'm good, and I love this topic. I think it probably makes sense to start by kind of defining what we mean by narcissism. Clearly, there's a spectrum here, and there's a pretty big difference between relatively benign forms of it and an actual pathology or a personality disorder. To give some basic information, people with narcissistic personality disorder are frequently described as arrogant, self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. They tend to be grandiose, show a lack of empathy for other people, and have a deep need to be admired and appreciated by others. So with that as a sort of basic outline, how would you, as a clinician, describe the spectrum of narcissism? Yeah, it's great. So let's think of this as several placeholders on a spectrum. Mm. At one end, we have a genuine narcissistic personality disorder, like you described, which often has sociopathic features in it. Mm. In other words, this is someone who feels entitled to special treatment, has a really hard time seeing other people as three-dimensional beings, tends to lack empathy, and tends to have very primitive morals in terms of using others as an extension of oneself. This kind of person is not making calculations in their interpersonal ethics, having to do with big abstract principles. No, it's much more calculations based on what can I get away with? What will I be caught for? And what will I do if I'm caught? Mm. In my clinical practice, I think I've met one person who genuinely really, really ticked all the boxes. You've worked with a lot of people over time. So the fact that you would say that there's only one kind of indicates that it's really not that common. Yeah, I think you might have mentioned at some point that the base rate is estimated as less than 1%. Yeah, uh, so the statistic on it is that there's less than 1% of the population has true blue narcissistic personality. Yeah, worldwide, the estimate for full schizophrenia is one in 100 people, Mm -hmm. 1%. So we're talking about something that's less common than schizophrenia Mm -hmm. in its full form. And this fellow wanted to rewrite all of my forms. He wouldn't take no for an answer. That's another thing about it when you're dealing with someone like that. They just can't believe that you're speaking up for yourself because you see, you're supposed to be their left little finger. Mm. You're supposed to just do their bidding. And maybe their bidding is to pretend to be distinct from them so that you can applaud wildly at whatever they might say. But you really are, you don't exist in the room. And that's one of the giveaways when you're around someone like this, where you really get that you just really don't exist for them as a being. That's the extreme form. And generally get as far as away as you can from that person. Mm-hmm. Don't go into business with them. Don't marry them. Don't sleep with them. Be really, really clear what you're dealing with. And also people with a narcissistic personality disorder, NPD as it were, tend to have very, very low treatment rates because they don't think they have a problem. Uh, That's really interesting. Yeah, that's actually a really good distinction there. 
So if that's narcissism at the 100% mark, mm-hmm. what's narcissism at the 5% mark or the 1% mark or the 10% mark? Yeah, let me first do the like 70% mark. This is the category where I would describe this as a person and a little detail here. Typically, a narcissist is really pulling for social supplies. You may know the myth of Narcissus. This was a beautiful, beautiful young man who stumbled upon a pond and in which he saw his reflection and he fell in love with the reflection. What a wonderful young man am I. And so it was about what is reflected back Mm. to the person. So distinguished from a sociopath. So a narcissist may have sociopathic tendencies. A sociopath may have some narcissism in there. But in the extreme form, sociopathy per se is not about pulling for social supplies. Narcissism per se has a lot in it that's about being prized, getting adulation, being seen as magnificent and larger Mm -hmm. than life. Mm -hmm. All right. So the 70% version, these are the people who are self-centered, selfish, uncaring. Frankly, a certain amount of research has indicated that that sort of self-preoccupation and self-importance travels with social class, you know? The richer Mm. people get, unfortunately, even though they can do more for others, the less they seem to care. That's a generalization with many exceptions on both ends of the social spectrum. So there are those people who, they're not the full-on narcissist that you would see in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders, but they are self-centered and obnoxious and harmful for others. So that's a category. I Mm -hmm. just kind of want to name that category. Under pressure, sometimes in a crisis, they have a heart attack and they're vulnerable and dependent on others. Or they have a conversation with her adult daughter who finally says, dad, I love you and all that, but really you've been an asshole all my life. Mm. And it really cost me. You cheated on mom. You did this and that. You were a really bad father. You need to hear me. You know, sometimes something like that can happen. But often a person like that just keeps on moving through life like a human wrecking ball, mm. looking around and going, what? what? What did I do? What happened? All right, that's the 70% version. Great. And to give kind of a counter to that, part of our operating theory of the case in this series is that we all got a little something that's yeah. you know, less than ideal about us. As you've joked in the past, your kind of drug of choice is maybe a little bit of OCD. My drug of choice is absolutely just a little bit of an anxiety. I think that those are kind of our tendencies as individuals. And I wouldn't really say that in a vacuum, any of these tendencies is kind of superior or or subservient to the other. They've all got their ups and downs, but some of them socially, we put a lot more kind of negative loading on. We tend to put a lot less negative loading socially on somebody who's a bit anxious like me versus somebody who's a bit narcissistic. And normally the reason for this is because my anxiety typically just hurts me. Whereas somebody else's narcissism can really hurt the people around them. So it's that relational quality that makes it particularly problematic. That being said, if that's kind of the 70% version, is there sort of a 10% version of narcissism? And how is that 10% version distinct from somebody who's just kind of confident? It's again a great question. So mm-hmm. now let's talk about the 20% or 30% version. Sure. So this could be someone who is really, really confident mm. and or someone who feels almost tacitly entitled entitled to good treatment, entitled to deference, entitled to be listened to. Or maybe this is a person 
who is very adept at sort of influencing or manipulating uh, the reactions of others to this person, maybe a really good salesman or a performer, a really good politician, someone who's very, very good at sort of constructing or directing the reactions that others have to that person. Now, if we step back, though, from those qualities, none of which individually is pathological, one of the things those qualities tends to be correlated highly with is privilege. Mm. Privilege, meaning you don't have to take certain things into account. Privilege, meaning you have certain expectations of how the world will treat you because that's how it has treated you in your upbringing in life. And if you think of members of society, say, who are statistically privileged, they do tend to be more prone to an attitude of self-assurance, entitlement, and adeptness at working the audience. Very often, to generalize, middle-class men. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of make that point in passing because that's a way in which we can look at this. And other, which means also unfairly certain qualities that we might just ignore in men because mm-hmm. they don't stand out as particularly unusual when we find them perhaps in women or members of other groups. We might then think to ourselves, whoa, that person's kind of big for their britches. They think they're better than who they really are. I need to put them back in their place. And that's not fair. One more element I'd like to add here kind of quickly and in passing has to do with what's called valuing or devaluing. So if you think of it, healthy narcissistic supplies implicitly carry a valuing in them. You matter enough to me, in other words, for me to pay attention to and for me to care about and for me to want to take good care of you. And then sometimes the valuing is explicit, like, oh, that was a wonderful painting you made in kindergarten, sweetie. So many colors. (laughs) Uh, You're you're really creative. You know how to paint outside the lines. That's right. Now we just have to get it off the sofa. But anyway, okay. (laughs) So there's that part. In adulthood, a clue for when you're around someone who is starting to run some significant narcissistic software, maybe at that 30% narcissist kind of person, is you feel subtly devalued around them. And sometimes you can't always put your finger on it. It's not like they're overtly criticizing or putting you down, but you start to have this feeling of wanting to prove yourself or that you need to prove yourself Mm -hmm. or you need to impress them in some way or you need to push to be as good as they are. And when those kinds of inner experiences start arising, it's useful to ask yourself, huh, what's really going on here? Sometimes you realize, eh, I misunderstood something, or I don't know, my moon is in Scorpio, or whatever. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But very often, more often than not, it will be a clue that you are around someone who is subtly and maybe not so subtly preemptively devaluing you to raise themselves in the valuation hierarchy by contrast. And when you start to see that that's what's really happening around that person, you start feeling small around them. You start feeling like you've got to get bigger to fill the space. That's telling you something probably about that other person. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And it jives with something we've kind of talked about a little bit in the past, which is that socially we're good at dealing with 
certain kinds of people. Mm-hmm. We're good at dealing with a boisterous young boy. We're good at dealing with a artistic young woman. But we tend to be a lot worse as a society at dealing with an artistic young boy or a boisterous young girl. They don't really conform to our internal stereotypes. So we tend to get a lot more bent out of shape when that personality type appears in front of us, which is kind of exactly what you're indicating here. We might just be a lot less attentive to the 20% narcissism, so to speak, of a middle-class man than we are to a upper-class woman, a lower-class woman, whatever it might be. And I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So with that as a little bit of kind of context on the spectrum, where does narcissism come from, so to speak? Mm -hmm. You're giving some indication here at some of the social factors that might contribute to narcissism. Are there other ones as well? Now I want to talk about normal narcissism, Mm -hmm. all right? And some of the problems that can arise when the normal narcissistic needs of a person, including that person as a very young child, are not appropriately fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different topic than exploring someone who is a clinical narcissist and hurting a lot of other people. So for a minute or less, I want to take us into the world that we all inhabited as an infant. Let's say the first zero to 18 months of our life. Mm -hmm. And it's useful to appreciate that the root of the word for infancy is without speech. In other words, an infant is not able to communicate very well while simultaneously being utterly physically dependent. If you imagine a human infant left alone in the wild for 24 hours, that infant would be dead by the end of that time period one way or another. And so we're incredibly vulnerable, surrounded by people who don't know what we need yet. So it's incredibly important in terms of raw, pure survival for us to feel that we can get the attention of others and that they start to vaguely understand what in the world is going on inside us and that they care about us. They want to do well by us. And so with that, urgency, that primal urgency, infants from a very early age, and I'm fairly knowledgeable about this territory given my dissertation and other things I've done, they are really seeking attunement. They want to have a sense that their state of being is actually matched by their caregivers. So their caregivers have a sense of the internal world of the infant. And this shows up in a lot, a lot of interesting ways. One little example is that if an infant does something that is simply mimicked by a caregiver that basically tells the infant, oh, okay, you can mimic me. So let's suppose the infant says, and the caregiver, the mom, the dad, the babysitter, whatever, says, back, okay, you got mirrored. But that doesn't take a lot of effort. On the other hand, if when you say as an infant, and your caregiver says we while also matching the trajectory of that communication with their body, like lifting their arms up in a big way while leaning back, it lets you know as the infant that they didn't just mimic you, 
They actually got from the inside out the essence of what you were communicating. Or even more, if the infant says, we, and after a couple of rounds of this, the caregiver doesn't say anything, but just lifts their arms up uh, with some energy while leaning back Mm -hmm. and softening. Mm -hmm. You could see the ways in which the brain of the infant is really, really forming a sense of, do I exist for you? Do I matter to you? Do you get me? Are you going to come through for me? And the answers to those questions are primarily urgent. So under good enough conditions, and good enough varies somewhat on the needs of the infant. First, some infants come in with greater needs. They're colicky. They are disabled, maybe. Their nervous systems, in effect, are not well insulated yet. So there are a lot of uh, sensory motor sensitivities, loud noises, bright lights really are invasive. Maybe their internal condition of gurgly stomach is really invasive for them. There's a normal variation here. And also, I think some infants are just naturally more sociable than others are. They're more extroverted, so they're particularly attentive to what's happening in the social field. That said, what is good enough? It doesn't have to be perfect, but there's a lot of research on what happens in the first three hours, days, months, and years of life and the consequences it has. So to kind of summarize, if an infant experiences emotional availability, that parents are really in the room, not just with their bodies, but their being is available to the kid. Also, are caregivers reading signals accurately? And as I go through this, you might think about your own childhood, which sometimes gets revealed when you have your own parents come to visit you mm. to see your kids, their grandchildren, and you watch how your parents are with your children because that's sometimes a pretty good guess. That was certainly true with my parents and you, Forrest. That's a pretty good guess for what they were like when you were growing up yourself. So emotional availability, check or not? Accurate reading of your signals, check or not. Desire to actually respond to your needs rather than thinking that responding will somehow spoil you Mm -hmm. or that you need to be toughened up or that if you are just given to some sort of nasty, id-like nature inside you, savage, will somehow come out, which should instead be civilized. These are various theories of parenting that affect how responsive parents are to the actual signals of the child. So to drop in here with a question, I think that that's an awesome summary of a really large body of research done, I think, very efficiently. (laughs) So thank (laughs) you for that. Thanks for the narcissistic supplies right now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so perfect example. So what you're saying is that, Uh if I could put this in kind of the most common English I know how to put it in, If a child receives enough of these things from their caregiver, Mm -hmm. they have received enough, quote unquote, narcissistic supplies or Mm -hmm. healthy narcissistic supplies. And if they do this, they are less likely to develop some of the internal deficiencies that lead to, quote unquote, narcissistic personality disorder. Is that more or less what you're saying? Yes, that's where I'm going. And there's some more. Mm. So in addition to just pure emotional availability, which on the parent's side is often shaped by their circumstances. Are they having to carry two jobs? Are they a single parent because their partner's a deadbeat? Are they cut off from networks of family and and kin and friends to be the so-called village it takes to raise the child? 
Does the parent have a health problem themselves? Is the parent clinically depressed? There's a lot of research on the impact of what it's like to have a mother, and this would apply to fathers as well, if they have a major role of uh, child rearing. What's it like for an infant whose mother is depressed or ill? Mm. Or there you are, you know, my sister was born 13 months after I was. She was conceived four months after I was born. My sister was just fine. And for many kids, it's when their sibling comes along, often, let's say, with health problems, that suddenly a reasonable, good enough amount of narcissistic supplies that were coming to them gets cut off and turned into a really, really thin soup. Mm. So these are things that shape the emotional availability as well as, of course, physical availability of the caregiver. Then second, reading signals accurately. And third, you know, coming through, delivering the goods. But that's not enough. There's mm. research on, for example, these very pathetic studies of little baby monkeys who have an opportunity to get all the food they want from a wire frame that looks like an adult female monkey, or they can just go hang out with a shapeless blobby frame that's covered with terry cloth and is soft and cuddly. These little babies, if necessary, they'll whip over and get the the food at the wireframe, but they want to hang out for the rest of their time with that soft, warm, cuddly place. So here too, we have needs uh, for comfort, for soothing, and for affection. How well were those met? And we have needs as well, last, for what could be called prizing. The sense that you're special. You know, when the kid stands on that diving board, you know, saying, look at me, everyone, look at me, everyone. Particularly if that kid is really, really little, that kid needs everyone to look at her Mm. or him or beyond gender. If the child does the picture and the parent says, this is the bestest picture in the world, there's a place for that. Yes, there can be pitfalls down the road where kids start to feel like everything they do is wonderful and they don't have to make efforts in life. But when kids are young, it's really important for them to experience prizing that they're special, they matter, that they're so special that the parent will crawl through a burning building on broken glass to help their kid, to come through for their kid. And as you said, Forrest, if we don't get enough of those normal narcissistic supplies, or more precisely, if we don't get enough of them that we internalize, without which there is no lasting value, as we know, then there's What's left is a hole in the heart, as I put it, an empty place inside that did not get enough of what we naturally needed as profoundly social primates. And people manage that hole in the heart in a variety of ways. I bet we'll talk about some of the things you can do. But it's really important to appreciate that, especially in the zero to three range, and even for quite a while after that, it's really important to just take a breath and feed the hungry bee as Tom Wolfe said in his book about the merry pranksters, feed the hungry bee. Even if you're a little annoyed, even if you just kind of think, you know, your natural reaction is go away, bee. Feed the hungry bee. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. And again, it's a really good summary of a ton of information. Implicit in what you're saying here, I think is actually the answer to the initial question that I asked. Yeah. Which is, what's the difference between somebody who's confident and exuberant and geez, maybe even a little full of themselves 
and somebody who truly has what I describe as negative narcissistic tendencies. Mm. And what it really comes down to, I think at the very least, to be clear as a non-clinician, is the difference between a sense of fullness and a sense of absence. Mm. If you are confident because you are full internally and mm. you received those supplies yeah. and you know your own capabilities and you just have a really deep sense in your heart that at the end of the day, it's going to work out for me here if I try my best. That's one thing. On the other side of it is somebody who maybe didn't receive those supplies when they were younger. Maybe there was some kind of a genetic component to the whole equation. Who knows? We don't really have a perfect map of how these different things kind of get into the psyche. Mm -hmm. We can just sort of make really good guesses and we try to have some good science to back it up. If somebody didn't have those positive experiences when they were younger and they have that whole, things are coming from a sense of absence from a sense of needing to refer constantly to external things, external inputs that they can then use to fill themselves up in a way where they feel like they get the thing that they were lacking before. Mm. And that's a subtle distinction, but I think that it's a really important one here. It's great, Forrest. I can, I can think of three kinds of issues in a sense, okay? Mm -hmm. The first kind is the kid who was really spoiled. Mm -hmm. And I worked in private schools a lot, sure, yeah. a lot of money sometimes, a lot of privilege. And I've, I really have seen kids who just sort of thought from the get-go that the world was, you know, supposed to come for them. Uh, there's a line, you know, born on third base, he thought he hit a home run, <laughs> something like that. And that's where I think it's really important for the adult community in general and, you know, parents and other involved caregivers in particular to take a moral stance with a kind with a kid like that and without being harsh about it, communicate in some way, you're really a small frog in a big pond. There's a big world out there with a lot of other frogs in it, and they have rights just like you do. And if you act like this over the long haul, it's gonna blow back in your face eventually. And to really kind of think about that. So that's one kind of problem. Second kind of problem is two variations on the hole in the heart. One version of it is someone who did not get those healthy narcissistic supplies and they've developed a strategy to get them now in the future. So they're really good at working other people to get their narcissistic supplies as adults. Supplies like empathy, like-mindedness, they're always pulling for agreement. They want praise, they want adulation. They kind of crowd other people out to the sides in the group space so no one else shares the spotlight with them. That's one version. A different version is a person who also has that hole in the heart, did not get enough, but they're kind of quiet about it. They're sort of mopey. Even there could be a denial that they need anything at all because feeling into those unmet longings that reach back often into childhood for healthy narcissistic supplies is really painful. So the person puts on the mask Oh, I don't need anything at all. Oh, no, no, no. It's okay. You speak first. Oh, no. Nobody wants to hear from me. It's okay. Uh, I'll just sit in the back here mm -hmm. like that. Those are three versions of a problem, and they're different from each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And to ask a kind of summary question here, because we're trying to sum a lot of information which we've already covered, to kind of put it at its most simple level, there's a manner in which we take in healthy narcissistic supplies to avoid becoming narcissists. Right. Whether at 18 months or three years or 
18 years or 48 years, you know, you have to take in those positive experiences to not have that, as you're saying, quote unquote, hole in the heart. Yep. So we take in good resources to create a strong sense of self yep. from which we are not narcissists and right. we do not have narcissistic craving. But in the act of doing that, how do we kind of avoid falling into some of those traps you're describing of grandiosity or thinking the world revolves around us or yeah. whatever it might be? Yeah, this has been a very significant personal journey for myself. And it's one that has interesting echoes in the, the spiritual traditions, especially those that are critical of craving and, and self and selfishness. All right. So first, it's important to be honest with yourself about your own hole in the heart. And as a piece of that honesty, it can be really helpful to just think about normal narcissistic needs, observe any tendency inside your own mind to dismiss those normal needs in young children, and then ask yourself, really, dozens and dozens and dozens of times each day in little interactive episodes, typically less than a minute in duration, what usually happened and what were the effects? So that's a key part right there, telling the truth about that inside yourself. Second, when you have an opportunity as an adult to experience healthy narcissistic supplies, which include being cared about in any way, shape, or form that's wholesome, it includes recognizing your own good qualities from the inside out. There are those occasional million-dollar moments or at least $10 moments when somebody is really grateful to you or sees something special in you or seeks you out expresses valuing of you in some way, shape, or form. When that's happening, let yourself feel it. And in the advice that we give on the show a lot, take it in. Why not? If you realize that it's actually on mission to become less self-referential, to gradually and repeatedly internalize experiences that are about what a wonderful self you are, (laughs) in other words, then you can be motivated to do this practice steadily half a dozen times a day. I mean, I did it that way and that really, really helped me. I talk about that as filling the hole in my own heart, you know, one brick at a time. I hand a few bricks every day. I think that's really important. And last, I would just say around it, uh, I recognize that this can be kind of a taboo in certain cultures or situations. If others detect that you are, you know, suffering the tall puppy syndrome, as they may say in Australia, they're going to cut you down. And it's useful to know that you can experience feeling listened to, kind of recreate early childhood. You know, are they emotionally available? Are they empathically attuned with you? Are they reading your signals accurately? Are they actually responding skillfully and reasonably appropriately? Do they even think that you're special in some way? Do they Mm -hmm. value you above and beyond feeling like they have a duty to you? When you're having a chance to experience these kinds of things these days, you can do so completely privately. Nobody needs to know you're doing that in the meeting, right? Everybody's acting all cool or all tough while you're just (laughs) replaying the movie again and again and again of the conversation you had with someone that took a minute and a half, you know, 10 minutes before the meeting began, in which they told you how grateful they were to you Mm. and how they really appreciated your presence in the organization and that you had really helped them in some important way. Is that the same advice that you would give to somebody who 
after some reflection here, concedes to themselves, you know, maybe I am that person who's narcissistic at the 20%. You mean in a way that's problematic? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great, interesting one. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of stories of that, aren't there, in terms of folklore and myths and fiction, where we have the kind of flawed main character who's uh, sort of overly confident, Han Solo, the Han Solo mm, character mm-hmm. in Star Wars. Sure, Basic- I think that, that actually might be a good example yeah. of somebody who's probably narcissistic at the 20 or 30 or yeah, yeah, 40 yeah. or 50%. That's right, yeah. that's right. That's right. <laughs> and there's this process where that character is humbled, has to slow down and in a vulnerable way, really take in the cherishing and appreciation of other people, and then becomes less of a jerk as a result. Mm. Although forever, he's going to have some attitude. Sure, absolutely. That's a very sweet process, I think. And you can see the elements of that in the Han Solo journey, if you will, even, just including the acknowledgement for that person that it's tense to be a 20% narcissist, in Mm. a sense, because you're always afraid of when will the clapping stop? When will the audience no longer want to buy your act? What do you have to do next time to get that round of applause? Are there any up-and-comers? who are going to push you off the stage. It's nerve-wracking. And so getting in touch with the ways that there's kind of suffering, plus it often creates interpersonal costs. People withhold natural social supplies from those they perceive as narcissistic. That's why, actually, one thing that's counterintuitive, but it's really helpful to know this. If you're working with someone who's narcissistic, not incredibly sociopathically, but just annoying, one thing that's actually really helpful is to help that person receive your authentic appreciation. Mm. Because often they'll go through a kind of scripted formality, but they haven't really internalized the experience from you of authentic appreciation. And so it's actually on mission for you to get them to internalize authentic appreciation because that will help them be less vain, arrogant, and annoying. Mm -hmm. Even if we're not the person who's, you know, narcissistic at the 20 or 30%, Mm -hmm. As you're saying, we probably all know somebody who is, and they might be a coworker or they might be a friend, they might be a parent, geez, they might be a child, whatever it might be. So that's the advice that you would give to somebody who's kind of working with that sort of person in their own life if they wanted to kind of help them move past some of those problematic tendencies to give them that sense of authentic appreciation at times. Yeah, I would I want to nest that with two other, you know, tips basically. The first of which is hold your own boundaries. Mm. And if you're kind of narcissistic, you sort of expand your field. And until you get pushback, you you think you've gotten consent. You're just kind of, you know, moving out. You you kind of take up airtime. You fill the room. And until people push back, you kind of think it's okay. And maybe even they're digging it. They're liking it. So when you're dealing with someone who's who's that 20% narcissist in the way we're talking here, I think it's important to kind of lay some clear boundaries. Like, well, no, actually, I don't see it that way. I'm fine with you seeing it that way, but I see it differently. Or, yeah, I didn't like that movie myself. Uh, Hamburgers are not my cup of tea. Whatever it might be, there's differentiation, there's distinction. And to be really clear, you're not going to let yourself be exploited. That person asks you for a favor, ask them for a favor sometime. Make sure that there's reciprocity. So that's really important. It kind of sets a basic frame. And often people who are the 20% narcissist, they actually appreciate that frame because it's unsettling to not know how far you can go. And you're always kind of afraid you're going to go too far. That's number one. Number two, yes, 
delivering and communicating uh, authentic appreciation to them so that and that they hopefully take in. And then last, empathy. It's mm. interesting, narcissists, deep down, they're pulling for empathy, and yet they're so annoying often that it's the last thing other people want to give. Or there's a fear that, well, oh my gosh, if I give you the empathy, it's going to be like you're a black hole and just human vampire going to suck the lifeblood out of me. Actually, counterintuitively, often authentic, clean, clear empathy with no advice in it and no movement off the empathy into some kind of interpersonal problem solving, just pure, clean expression of empathy can actually be very effective in kind of settling down a narcissist. And I've used that method myself. I I heard about it and I thought, well, really? And it was surprisingly effective. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And it's a good roadmap for people who might be trying to manage somebody with that challenging type of personality inside of their own life. So we've been going for a little while here. And I think that that's a pretty thorough encapsulation of some of the topics that stem from dealing with people with narcissistic tendencies, either in our own lives or just kind of knowing more about the tendency in general. So I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up today's episode. Today, we explored narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. Though the roots of narcissism are somewhat unclear, it's generally thought to occur based on a combination of genetic and environmental or social factors. And in general, is a bit less common than we generally make it out to be. It occurs in about 1% or less of the population as full-blown NPD or narcissistic personality disorder. We talked about the spectrum of narcissism and how that full disorder differs from much more frequent kinds of either light narcissism, the kind of person who maybe they're a little exploitative, maybe they're a little too big for their britches, but at the end of the day, they'll bend to the will of the community or somebody who honestly is just kind of confident and really believes in themselves. The distinction that I drew around it was that somebody who is truly confident is confident from the inside out, while somebody who suffers from narcissistic tendencies is typically more confident from the outside in. They have to constantly fill that hole in their heart because it was not sufficiently filled during their childhood developmental years or based on their unique genetic composition. We then spent the rest of our time exploring how we can take in the positive resources necessary to build inner strengths without falling play to narcissistic tendencies ourselves. The point you kept on returning to was that fundamental concept of taking in the good And also just being really okay with resting for a moment, whether it's in a meeting or while you're doing the dishes, and just playing back some of the positive experiences you've had recently. You also drew some really good distinctions in child rearing between that sort of really good positive reinforcement, particularly not to uh, be too specific here, but to kind of ballpark, particularly before maybe two or three years of age. And then just kind of the natural process as the child gets older of saying, hey, other people have feelings too, and the kind of necessary lessons that have to exist there. We also spent a little bit of time at the very end there exploring narcissism in our relationships with coworkers, family members, friends, and maybe some of the tools that you can use to try to help them work with their own tendencies or relate to them more effectively while maintaining your own healthy boundaries. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would rate it and leave a comment and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. We really do appreciate it and it's definitely the best way to help us out. 
To let you know about something else that's going on, Rick has a monthly meditation series that he is currently doing. It's a great resource if you're looking for a way to get more of that into your daily life. There are a bunch of accompanying materials that he has related to it that go out on a weekly or even daily basis. And if you would like to sign up for that program, you can use the code BEINGWELL10 at the checkout and save 10% off of the purchase price. I'll include a link to that in the show notes of today's episode. So until next time, thanks again for listening. 